This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're talking to Stan Slap, New York Times best-selling author and CEO of Slap, a company that specializes in achieving fierce support from manager, employee, and customer cultures. Stan has been helping business leaders understand and get commitment from these three groups for 30 years, and today shares with us how leaders can reframe the pandemic to move beyond survival, what an employee culture is, how it operates, and what it needs from its leaders, and why going to market based on value is ultimately a losing proposition. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Customer Obsessed. Eric, how are you? Uh, I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing really well, but why are you just okay? I just I just read the most depressing thing this morning. Can I share it with you? Sure. Don't bring me down, Eric. Andrew Cuomo just published a book. I got blindsided by like a friend of mine who doesn't like Andrew Cuomo. And I actually was really pretty impressed with how he was dealing with COVID in the early days, but he published this book, released it today, it's called American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, Andrew Cuomo. How fucking ridiculous is that? I've been, you know, sitting there watching his press conferences since the beginning of this, and I actually have been really impressed with his leadership skills, and then he comes out and publishes a book about it? Like, first of all, when has he been writing it? Right. Yeah. When do you have the time? <laughs> that was honestly my first thought. <laughs> I mean, I saw this this morning. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? How inauthentic is that as a leader? Mm-hmm. But our guest today, Stan Slap, is all about how do leaders stay authentic and how do leaders listen to their culture and how do leaders learn the lesson that they can't just tell employees and they can't just tell their organization what to do. Like that to be a strong leader is actually to understand that that organism that Stan calls, he calls a culture and actually a living organism. It's something that needs to be nurtured and it's something that will make its own decisions and it will react to things on its own. And uh, poor leadership is what will ultimately kill a culture. So when I saw this book published today, I was like, wow, he, Andrew Cuomo just lost me. I, I'm not saying yeah, I'm, gonna I, out, I'm not gonna move out of New York tomorrow, but. But, but it was definitely a big, a big misstep. And I think certainly a cultural misalignment between him yeah. and his constituents, right? Frontline workers that for the last nine months have been putting it out there and you have businesses shut down and you have children that are not back in school and you have parents trying to deal with that reality. And you have everyone, for the most part, trying to stay very positive. The last nine months, as tough as it's been, you know, when you walk down the street or you get in an elevator or you, and, and I've actually done quite a bit of traveling and in red states and blue states, I'm seeing masks. I'm actually seeing a lot of really compassionate behavior. I know that's not 100% the case across the board. But when you have all that going on and then you publish a book in the face of it, which is completely a self-serving, economically driven, egotistical move, like, wow. I mean, I think if he felt the absolute need to publish a book, why not use his platform to focus on the average person 
who is working through this and, and leading through this. So instead of focusing on his leadership lessons, why not use that as a way to highlight everyone else and their experiences, right? And what they have been going through and paint a true portrait of what it's been like across the board to exist and live through the pandemic rather than using this as another political soapbox tool. And by the way, this is not a partisan comment because I am a lifelong Democrat, as socially horrifying as it is today to reveal your political affiliation. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> we have to be able to criticize our leaders. That's the heart of a good healthy democracy so we'll see if we can get andrew on the phone for the next episode that'd be fun maybe we'll hook him up with the balsam tree company and they can kind of oh sort out their deficiencies oh my gosh yeah we're getting we're getting to that christmas time too oh my god have you ordered the tree, tree? no, no. You, you haven't what, what no, are you doing this year you're, paral you're paralyzed this year right what are you gonna no, do no i'm getting a real tree this year okay <laughs> So Stan, you're coming to us from downtown or, or somewhere in San Francisco, and you said it's completely dark outside because of fires and heat and, and Armageddon, basically, right? Yeah, basically, and the dance steps of the apocalypse. I think our, our every morning now is like those Terminator and Mad Max movies where they start with the prequel of how the end of the world happened. Like, and then you go, wow, that must have been intense. Yeah, we're somewhere about 33 seconds into that. I've always thought of you, and hopefully you take this the right way, but I've always kind of thought of you as like the the Howard Stern of corporate culture. In fact, I remember the first time I met you was in Salt Lake City, I don't know, five or six years ago, you were speaking at a conference. And I've been in corporate America my entire career. I worked at the Big O for 10 years, and and then I started a company, and then I ended up at IBM. But when I heard you speak that first time, and I hadn't yet read your book, you've written two bestsellers, I just thought this guy is cutting through all the bullshit about what happens inside of an organization, and he's saying it how it is, and he's telling leaders and managers how they need to try to behave if they're going to get their people to perform. And I, I remember walking away saying, you know, this was something that Gartner or McKinsey or no one else could do it, but someone that had really been, had kind of watched the rise of particularly these tech companies. So I'm psyched to have you on today because I want more of that. And I think we need more of it right now, given that everyone's working remotely and probably talking behind their manager's back while they're on mute, right? Yeah. So I guess all I could say in response to that is other than thank you for your kind words is be careful what you're asking for. How are you dealing even with your business? Like you do a ton of public speaking. You obviously are publishing things. You just published a great white paper called uh, Tougher Teams, Tougher Times or Tougher Times, Tougher well, Teams. Tough times, Tough Tougher Teams. But, you know, yeah, basically. Yeah. I, you know, we're doing, uh, we're, we're busier than ever. I've got people all over the world. We work in 12 African countries. I have a whole team out there. We've got a team in Europe and, and North America. And so we've had to translate a lot of our solutions into virtual versions and that's been pretty intense for that development team but this tough times tougher teams the whole point of this is it's really not about what's happened it's about what happens next and it's what you do about it and so we've been leading with that solution for people because companies have just never seen this is obviously you don't need me to say this is unprecedented but 
it's this is unprecedented and it's what you do about it and there are big decisions to be made that will help you or haunt you forever and so that has kept us very busy so what are some of those decisions that you think organizations have to be making right now or, or to get ahead of it? And I guess the worst organization right now is the one that's just doing nothing and is kind of paralyzed and is like waiting for the restart, right? Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, it's understandable. The biggest decision, if you're going to, I hate for this to sound trite or down the Zen toilet bowl, but if you are going to really solve a problem, you have to solve the problem that really needs to be solved. And the first problem that really needs to be solved for any company now is what is the test you need to pass? And if you think that the test you need to pass is to survive, I mean, assuming you have a chance of surviving, if you think it's to survive, then you're going to hunker down, you're going to stay in your lane, you're going to flinch when you should punch, you're going to be obsessed with where you are. If you say the test we need to pass is how to have our best years ever without being predatory, without abandoning purpose, but it's how to succeed. Well, then you're operating with an entirely different level of confidence and collaboration, and, and your focus is on where you want to be, not where you are. That's a critical mindset difference. And if you're going to say, well, the test we need to pass is how do we succeed amidst these tough times, then that leads you to the real problem to solve, the real test you have to pass, which is how do we get others to help us do that? And there are three groups that can help you do that, and only three groups that will decide whether you can do that. And that's your manager culture, your employee culture, and your customer culture. So I would say the first issue is figure out what's the right test you need to pass here. Those three groups are obviously critical, and you have to figure out how to grow them, nurture them, and put them in a position where they can innovate and take risk. But I think the other piece of it is, Now's a great time to take risk. It's a great time to take risk. And businesses grow because they take risk. They don't grow if they're trying to survive or they're trying to be defensive or they're trying to protect what they have, which are all survival instincts, right? But you can't just be a leader and say, all right, we're going to take a risk. You got to get your employees to line up behind it. My first rule of management is sanction the inevitable. If things suck anyway, claim it's part of your well-conceived strategic plan. So since you're, you're, you're now in a position of having no choice, you're in a risk environment, you might as well go, exactly. We were having dinner last night, uh, but we ate at this, this restaurant opened up in our town like two years ago, a little Italian place, Cafe Ayala. And the guy's from Rome and he's great, but it's just a little hole in the wall Italian place. And he was shut down for two months because of COVID. And then he got to open up on the sidewalk and we've been going there throughout the pandemic. Everyone's wearing masks. It's all, it's all good. And a restaurant up the street shut down and it was in the paper in our little town like two weeks ago said it's shut we're shutting down. We can't survive anymore. And this guy from Rome just leased it. He's like, I'm busting out. I'm not going to have a little hole in the wall anymore. We're taking this thing uptown. And I was like, I love you. Like, yeah, yeah. this is pandemic thinking. This is not about survival. Let's how do we succeed? Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, listen, with all deep empathy for the companies that were caught short or were fledgling or, I mean, this is just the absolute worst time in it are not making it. For the people in those companies, it is the thinking that we're talking about that you carry with you that will allow you to get back, Jack, and do it again. Yeah. And But if you still have a foot in the game, this mindset is critical. Do you think that one of the things that this period of time is going to teach organizations and, and teach companies that 
because the ones that are suffering right now, and I'm not talking about maybe the small corner cafe, I'm talking about the companies that you typically are working with, but there are a lot of those that are struggling right now, or some that are going belly up, which are big brand names that we've known about for decades. Do you think this is going to teach those organizations that they can't be living hand to mouth and that you have to be prepared for situations like these in the future? Maybe not as dramatic as what we're going through right now, but it's certainly a wake-up call. I would like to think so. One of the reasons I wrote the Tough Times, Tougher Teams white paper uh, and that we created the solution set around that is I was looking at the advice that a lot of the major consulting companies were giving, and it was, you know, avoid excessive debt and unnecessary expenses, leverage the latest technology, show empathy to your people. Those were real good ideas before the trouble, too. Okay. Yeah. yeah. To tell a company right now, don't have too much debt is like, oh, thanks. Yeah, but you no, know, I mean, you know, if, if you sold to a PE, let's just take, you know, a company that shall remain nameless, but which in fact is Neiman Marcus. And it just got over leveraged in a business that has become a commodity selling commodities and margin shredding competitive battles. And then you over leverage that business or you've overexpanded, I mean, then you're going to be vulnerable. So will companies, will they learn these lessons? You know, the smarter ones will, but there's a lot of reasons for doing this. It's not just about survival. There are other issues here that I would say, you know, with, with all respect to the fiduciary responsibility and all the masters you serve financially for any company that's depending on you to manage revenue and margin and market share and growth and all those things, there are larger issues here. How does a human being justify the gift of life? You take care of those who depend on you. You give back for your success. You practice kindness and respect. You, you strive to make the world both a better place and not a worse one. Why should it be any different in justifying the life of an enterprise? And to be trusted about what matters most, this is the defining grace of your company. And what matters most now is your humanity. Amidst the, the unheard of circumstances that are gripping us all, extend this now. It's time to, to not be this centric. That's it. It's time to be human centric. And your humanity is what will save you. This crisis is an amplifier, really. Yeah. Good people will do more good things. Bad people will use this as an opportunity to do more bad things. Good companies will do more good things. Bad companies will do more bad things. Good politicians will do more good things. Bad politicians will do more bad things. So the only question really is, are there more good people than bad people in the world? And the answer to that question was decided long before this crisis. And I believe that there are, because if they're not, nothing else makes yeah, we wouldn't be here, by the way. We wouldn't be here. So there's two things that we know for sure amidst this uncertainty. One is that these tough times are not going to last forever. And two is that the story of how you stood up to them will. Now, you're going to be living with that story for a long time. What you do now will be remembered. Who you are now will be remembered longer. I would say this to anybody who's listening to this podcast, anybody running a company, anybody managing a team, anybody who's just is listening to this podcast, was stumbling around the Dow for Howard Stern and got to this, is that you're going to, this is life during wartime in a way. Right. You're going to have to answer for 
a long time to your company, to your culture, to your community, to your children, to your conscience, you'll be answering to all of these until the end of your days. What did you do when everything inside of you and around you was tested? And so this stuff, I mean, we can talk certainly tactical, practical, strategic. I mean, this is the work that we do to help our clients about how to navigate an enterprise through these tough times. But there's something bigger at stake here. Well, it's funny when you say that, and I think that's, that's really well put. You know, when we were building our business and we didn't have to go through a pandemic, we did go through two recessions, 9-11. When everything, the chips were down, whenever I honestly woke up thinking, today's the day we go out of business, I would just push myself to go see customers. And as we got bigger, I would tell the organization that. I'd say, you know what? Things are a little slow right now. Get out. Go see your customer. I don't, you may remember this commercial, Stan, but there was a United Airlines commercial years ago, like 25, 30 years ago, where the CEO calls a meeting and just starts handing out airline tickets. He's like, go see your customers. And I think in this time, you need to know who your customers are. You need to know which are the ones that need you, which are the ones that need more, which are the ones that maybe don't like you. Right now, if you're not close to your customers, your chances of survival, let alone being successful, are slim. I agree with you. And for companies that are going to be successful, they're going to get this message that what customers would buy from a company if they could buy anything is usually not what a company sells. So it wouldn't be your company's value, however you define quality and price and durability, whatever, innovation. It would be satisfaction of their own values. And whether it's B2B or B2C, you're still selling H to H, you're selling human to human. So core needs of safety and energy and emotional fulfillment. Now, most companies, classic business thinking, pre-pandemic and, and for most companies still business thinking is, you go to market based on value. And the better your value prop is, the stronger that is, the more successful you're going to be. In this day and age of uh, already of massive buying choices and, and a very tight, uh, a lot of avenues for a customer culture to talk to itself about you, that's very dangerous anyway. But given these extraordinary circumstances, to go to market based on value is a very dangerous thing to do. The companies that will succeed during this time are the ones that go to market, not just on value, but on relevance. And I don't mean relevance as another spin on value. Most companies only try to be relevant to their customers when they're trying to sell them something. <laughs> and there's a lot going on in your customer's world. That means you are choosing to be irrelevant to them for most of the time. And that's a very dangerous business strategy. And so companies that just say, what are our, our clients, what are our customers thinking about 99% of the time when they're not thinking about us. Even if it's not something we're selling them, let's use our resources to help them, to support them, to give them solutions. And, you know, if we can't give them solutions, we'll actually at least give them empathy. And this is, value is selling, relevance is giving. And it's not an anti-revenue strategy. Helping your customers in tough times without using it to sell them something is the best way to earn their affection, which often translates them into buying something. And also, into making sure you stay around long enough so they can repay the favor. So I hope it's a lesson that sinks in, that we need to be relevant, not just valuable. And Stan, I love that idea and that 
concept around relevance is about giving. I think that that's really powerful. And I'm wondering, do you have any examples of companies that you see doing that really well? I'd love to maybe hear a story or two about where you see people succeeding. So in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, we helped a lot of companies navigate successfully through that. But those were different circumstances. Our message back then was like tough love, like whining is not a strategy. Victim is not a job description and management. Everybody else is in trouble too, is not management information. So it doesn't matter why things suck. It matters what you do about it. Back in 2008, Cisco, the restaurant supply company, any financial crisis today's then affects the, uh, the restaurant industry. And so their customers are in a lot of trouble and they sell restaurant supplies. And so they sent back of house and front of house teams out to their customers. And the back of the house team would watch the kitchen and analyze the plating and the portions and, and the flow of the kitchen and make recommendations on how to increase efficiency and tighten spend and just and make that kitchen hum at a lower cost. Meanwhile, the front of the house teams were looking at how do you promote differently? How do you arrange this front of house experience? And a lot of their recommendations resulted in people buying less of Cisco products temporarily. They were trying to help their customers. Now, you could say that's nakedly self-serving because better that you buy less now than you go out of business and buy nothing. But they were doing the giving. They were saying, we're in this with you right now, right here in the heat we're in this with you. And it's not about us, it's about you. Now that's true partnership. I'm taking on your concern as my concern. So Aaron, that's actually one of my favorite examples. There are a lot of companies doing it now, but I just love that, that image of a restaurant supply chain coming in and actually showing you how to spend less with them. And also I'll tell you, this is a company that operates on fairly thin margins. So- it's already operating on thin margins. That's a bold way to, to operate in times when your shareholders are probably sitting there going, wait a minute, why are you doing all this stuff for free? But it is a strategy that ultimately, I'm sure, helped them tr- tremendously, right? Yeah. And also, you know, they were making suggestions that even when business picked up again, stood a good chance of that restaurant still not buying as much because <laughs> they've taught them how to, how to waste less. So it was seemingly a bold move, but it was something you get remembered for forever. You've done a lot of writing and speaking on this whole concept of managers and and this whole concept. Like one of the things you said to us years ago was, as a leader, you don't own the culture, but you have to listen to the culture. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit for our audience and and talk about how you look at corporate cultures and how do you unleash them and and how do you make them a positive force or, or try to influence them as a positive force in an organization? I mean, if we're talking about culture... We're talking about the most overused, least understood concept in business. Culture was actually Merriam-Webster's word of the year in 2014. So according to the most popular dictionary in the entire English language, culture was the most newly searched for word in the entire English language. And in my company, because culture is all we're about, we like to say a banana had made word of the year instead. By now, companies would understand what a banana is and recognize it's not going to peel itself just to feed you. And so I, the first thing that this has to start with is recognizing what a culture is, because from there, you can recognize its extraordinary power to serve and save you if it chooses to do that. So a culture happens whenever a group of people share the same basic living circumstances. And so they naturally band together to share beliefs 
about the rules of survival and emotional prosperity in their environment, whether it's the jungle of Samoa or the Microsoft campus in Redmond. So what does it take for us to survive living in this jungle, in this tribe with this chief? And then knowing we're going to be okay, how do we get rewarded emotionally and avoid punishment? So culture is not the way things are around here. That's just the currency of the culture. Culture is a self-protective organism living right inside the enterprise with its own purpose and all the power to make or break any management plan and any manager. If something is going to happen in your company, it's because your culture wants it to happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's because your culture didn't want it to happen. And so, you know, we're, we're opening up a huge subject, but first is recognize that a culture exists to protect itself, not the company. And that, that's baffling, understandably baffling to, to companies to have that epiphany because it's fair enough for management to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're concerned about your survival? You exist to protect yourself? Do your job and you'll keep it done. Okay, wait, I've missed the whole emotional part. Okay, do a good job and we'll tell you that. Done. But that would only work if your culture perceives a reliable through line between what happens for the company and what happens for the culture. And chances are it doesn't. So cultural commitment is a matter of aligning the culture's beliefs with what it takes for it to survive in this uncertain environment and what it takes for the company to survive. And so this is an endless subject. I mean- No, and and the reason I asked the question is when I heard you basically say those same words seven or eight years ago. And it changed the way we managed our company because the thing that stuck in my head was, wait a minute, I don't own this thing. I can't just command it to go in a certain direction. It's like a teenager, right? You can put some guardrails up and you can set down some basic guidelines, but then how you get this thing to perform, it's it's up to them. And they're going to respond to you based on how they feel and do they feel safe and are you showing empathy and are you a a good person? And all of a sudden as leaders inside of Blue Wolf, we started working on that stuff. We didn't start working on, you know, task lists of the next 10 things we needed the people to do. And it was transformative for us. It really was. I would say two things about that uh, other than congratulations for getting that and driving that is that first, when companies talk to their cultures, they talk about what, how, and why. You know, here's what's got to get done, how it's got to get done, why it's got to get done. And when the culture just doesn't quiver in ecstasy upon receiving this message, (laughs) you know, the company talks louder because clearly the point was you didn't hear us. So we'll talk louder and more often about this. And when that doesn't move a culture, it's campaign time, right? It's collateral and contests and slogan. And when that doesn't work, it's assumed the culture's got all the intellectual agility of a small soap dish and just cannot properly marvel at the sophistication and intelligence of the senior strategy. But when you're talking to a culture, the what, how, and why doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is why not. Given the corporate logic and urgency of what you're asking the culture to do, and maybe even some implied material benefit, why would your culture not give its full commitment? And if it's not giving its full commitment, it has reasons to believe that it's not a safe and same thing to do. And it believes it has empirical data for those reasons. So the focus has to be on the why not, not the what, how, and why. But if you get that, your culture will give you whatever you want. As long as you give it what it wants first, it'll give you whatever you want. The key is, it is not the responsibility of your culture to understand the business logic. It's a responsibility of your business to understand the culture's logic. 
And that's the point you got all those years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, totally. And we would, we would sit there and say, okay, how do we get people prepared to go and do battle in the customer landscape? Right. And how do we make them feel like they're going to be protected and they're going to have teammates and they're going to have foxholes and they're going to have tools and innovation that they can constantly impress customers with and constantly engage customers with. And I think organizations that have cultures that are in that defensive survival mode, they don't stand a chance in front of customers. Their ability to deliver customer experiences is luck if it happens. So another question that I have, in addition to providing the right tools and indicating that there's going to be the right level of support in both of your perspectives, does it also have something to do with showing the culture that you trust them and that they have autonomy and that they're empowered to take action on their own without needing permission? Uh, sure. I mean, you are more trustworthy yourself if you trust others. I mean, that's just uh, absolutely. Autonomy is not a culture's key. A culture is safety obsessed. It's trying to determine the known rules in an environment it perceives as constantly uncertain. It can't reliably predict or control its environment. And so, yes, autonomy is great, but context, why something is happening, is even more important. Predictability. We know what's going to happen next, or if we don't, we know what the company will do if something unforeseen happens. And emotionally, sense of self, it says something about us, about our character to be working in this company, to be hired by this company, to be allowed to represent this company. I would say those things, even more than autonomy, are critical. What about values? I know, uh, you know, you talk to a lot of companies and CEOs, oh, we need to establish our values, but I know you, you kind of take a contrarian view to that. Values, declared values, are the gateway drug to cultural detachment. Whenever we see a company that's got cultural problems, we can generally trace it back in part to their declaration of values. So here's the thing about values, Eric, as you know, when values are declared by company, first of all, Companies declare something as a value generally when it's actually a strategy for market performance. And so it changes constantly as a strategy will as opposed to a value. But it, basically, values are unaudited lists of aspirational behaviors. And when they're presented to a culture, they're presented as absolutes. Like if you want to unpack the DNA of this company and put it into these words, this is who we are. So they're presented as almost religious doctrines. Well, then you can't blame a culture for assuming that they'll be protected religiously by the company. And that's impossible. And so what happens is when the culture gets these values, and the culture is a human organism, it understands values, and then sees that they're not protected under pressure, and major revenue generators violate the values at will, and nothing happens to them. In fact, good things happen to them. And all the other sins that companies commit You've taken the most profound of human concepts, which are values, and pitched it to the most profound of human organisms, which is a culture, under false pretenses. And trust is fractured at a very deep level. The thing to do about this is there's a way out of this, and that is not to present them as values, to present them as obsessions. To say, like if, this, if we were rolling this back to Blue Wolf, to say this company is obsessed that it runs according to these principles here. Now, 
Will it always run that way? What are you, nuts? This is a real world. Don't judge us by whether we always run according to these principles. Judge us by the ferocity of our response if we ever don't. And that lifts the burden of management having to be flawless about this. And if it's stuff is really important to you, you are going to react. And so that shift is more than a rhetorical shift. It's critical. Well, you saved us a lot of time because after I had read a lot of this from your publications and heard you speak about it, I, I could say to my management team with confidence that we do not have to establish corporate values. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I suppose you could just take that right over into your personal life. You know? <laughs> it's kind of the gift with purchase. We're going to go in a little reverse here before we wrap up. Like, How did you get started in all this stuff? What's the early Stan Slap stories? Oh, my God. I mean, you'd have to go to Interpol for those. Um, I left home very early. I'm not going to tell you this in real time, but I left home at 16, and the only job I could get was in retail, of course. And I didn't steal, and I was willing to work every night and every weekend. So clearly, I had management written all over me. So my experience was there, and then I ended up starting my own company as a retail consulting company. And there was a period of time we moved up to San Francisco, and there was a period of time where our entire company mission statement, uh, it was on the, written on the whiteboard in our conference room, was Oracle has a lot of money and they need to give us some. <laughs> that was it. And so I think that's where it started. But really, beyond that, Eric, very quickly, when I started our company, we were just a bunch of consulting sluts. I mean, we would do anything anybody wanted at any time for any amount of money. People would say, so is this what you do? Yes, that's exactly what we do. That's how consulting yeah. firms start, though. It yeah, really they is. They, right. Really? We have to wear that outfit? We'll wear the outfit. We got like, right? And even in those unguided missile days, I did know two things. I know I, I wanted us to be a great company. Otherwise, what's the point of even saddling up? And I wanted to make sure that whatever we sold – you couldn't buy anyplace else. So if you didn't buy it from us, that was a problem we we're going to have to deal with. But we aren't going to be answering RFPs and right. we weren't going to, we're just not going to do that stuff. So great companies, and I know this was true for your company too, when, when we worked together, great companies are created by a deranged radical or a group of deranged radicals who have a hardcore point of view about what's right with the world that must be protected and wrong with the world that must be corrected. And they bring that to the business at Genesis because they bring it, they bring it to the supermarket. They bring it every place they go. They're just hyper aware of this. So in its early days, when the company's value prop is first being defined, it's also being conceived of as a delivery vehicle to build a better world. Even if you're just selling office furniture, we have people making it and selling it. We have people buying it. Let's saddle up together and do something about what matters most. And so to me, the worst thing that one human being could do to another human being, short of actually killing somebody, is to make them feel small. Mm. To say, you're not, you can't, you won't. And culture is where the humans gather in business. In my company, when we can reprioritize, reposition these three cultures, employee, manager, and customer, back to a company as newly precious workable assets, we cause a company to protect them because a company will protect anything that's an asset especially if it's newly squeezable in some way. You can't protect these three assets without protecting the humanity that they represent and probably without discovering or rediscovering your own humanity along the way. So we are in business to make the business case for humanity. If we lose humanity in business, I mean, we've already arguably lost it in politics. Some would argue even in religion. 
what's the third great organizing framework for humanity other than family and community? It's business. If we lose humanity and business, we're doomed. If we save it company by company, manager by manager, we've saved ourselves. Yeah. So that's where it started. And that's what still drives us today. That's amazing. You know, you just made me think of something else. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, small startups that all of a sudden have an idea, that radical inventor or leader that you refer to. But what we see, and I remember you talking about this years ago, was we see that their skill sets actually tap out at some point because they continue yeah. to try to be entrepreneurial all the time. And at some point, that becomes damaging to the organization. Yeah, true. Yeah. At least from my experience. Like, can you give some advice to some of our entrepreneurial listeners out there around how to evolve into leaders? You're right. It's such a pressure point for companies that um, I'm dealing this with this in my own company as, as it grows. And I think one of the ways of typing a company is by its obsessive driving force. So the obsessive driving force of a small company is to survive. And the obsessive driving force of a mid-sized company is to grow. And the obsessive driving force of a very large company is to protect what it already has. Mm. So I would say as a company moves past that survival one of the things I found that has to be rejiggered, as it were, for a CEO who founded a company, and unless you, you got a great venture partner or, or PE partner, that really was guiding it through nail-biting times, like how are we going to make payroll? How are we going to make the rent? How are we going to stay in business? How are we going to do this? Is that trauma is so deep that it's hard for you to get out of that survival thinking. And even when the company starts to grow and you bring in people who just see the metric as growth, it's like your assumptions, they don't care if they don't realize that things could go away at any moment. And so you, you just hold the company too close. So I would say one thing is, is you got to recognize you've moved from one phase to another. Of course, survival is still important, but you've moved from one phase to another. But on the other hand, when companies really start to grow, then the only metric is bigger. And people join you now for notches on the resume and money plays, not the original righteous cause if there was one for the business. Mm. And now you need capital to keep pace with growth. And investors don't make any connection between passion and profit. And so I think the critical thing in that next phase is to recognize, so a company in growth mode doesn't like to look backwards to its own history because it's small. And what I would say is take that essence of why you really started this company and never lose it and scale that, um, have a reason for why you do business, but also have faith that the people joining you now are not disrespecting concerns for survival just because they're focused on growth. Wow. No, I see that so much. You know, Obviously, we work with small companies. We're very familiar with Salesforce, which is a company that is now a large company, but is doing its best to hold on to its reason for being and its legends mm -hmm. and its stories, and, and it's still in growth mode. And then we worked inside of IBM, which has great stories, but culturally is really struggling with trying to figure out how to grow. And those themes kind of wind through all of them. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Dan, we've talked a lot about caring about people as people, their humanity, all of our relationships and what that means. And so I want to ask my favorite question, which is just around books and works of fiction and all that can teach you about what it means to be human. And I'd love to hear from you about one or two of your favorites that have had a really big impact on you. 
And see, I'm talking to you from our home library, which has over 5,000 books in it. So picking from those books about, I would say, immediately books that meant something to me, my all-time favorite book is a book called Winter's Tale by Mark Halperin. And I believe it's why the English language was invented. It's an almost impossible book to describe, but the use of language to set place and the nuances of love and loyalty and, and human trial and ultimate hope and the fearless injection of humor during the most intense passages makes it the number one book I would gift to anybody. And finally, I would say there's a book called The Roaches Have No King. This book is written from the cockroach perspective of a family of cockroaches who grew up in an apartment in New York, and they grew up in the bookshelf. And so they've survived on on the library pace. So they're very smart cockroaches. And they live with this guy and his girlfriend and they worship the woman. She's a goddess to them because she's got a fiery temper. And when she gets pissed off at the boy friend, she throws food at him. So she's a goddess to the cockroaches, right? And then horror of horror to the cockroaches, they finally have the ultimate argument and they split up and it's panic in the cockroach nation. What are they going to do without their primary fiery food source? But it's actually the golden age for the cockroaches because he gets depressed and he orders Chinese food and pizza and just leaves it there. And so it's just the days of feasting, right? Until he finally meets a new woman who's a neatness freak and it's panic in the cockroach nation. And so the rest of the book, she's a brunette, is the campaign the cockroaches mount to get out of the apartment down the hall to another apartment where there's a very foxy blonde and grab one blonde hair and drag it back and or lay put it, it on the bed or something. <laughs> yeah, it's just, and, and you know, just I say when people say, "Do you read books about strategy?" That's the one I recommend. <laughs> So Eric, Stan's book recommendation, The Winter's Tale, it just jogged my memory. And I remember, I haven't read it, but I do remember that it was adapted into this awful, saccharine, mystical movie starring like Colin Farrell and Russell Crowe or something. And I actually went to go see it on Valentine's Day in New York. And it was, yeah, it was just, a, it was a mistake. Uh, but it's so if you're not a fan of long books, unfortunately, you really should just skip the experience entirely because the movie cannot possibly do it justice based on Stan's recommendation. <laughs> so you're, you're, we're basically saying that Stan's book is a piece of shit. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you can't commit to an epic genre bending fantasy that's hundreds of pages long, don't try and replace it with the movie because the I movie got it. didn't do it I justice. Got it. So The Winter's Tale is, is, a, is a long read. Yes. Sometimes they have a tough time making movies out of literature. That's fair. You know, I mean, for example, I mean, you talk about epic genre fantasy, Lord of the Rings. They had to split it into three movies, right? So, and I'm a lifelong Lord of the Rings fan. So, <laughs> very high expectations going into films like that. What about the Roach book? Oh, I would read it. That I would read it cool. for sure. Cool. I've heard about that one before. I've never read it, but I'm, I'm going to put it on my list. So Eric, at the end of the interview, Stan framed your question about transitioning from an entrepreneur into a leader in the context of three obsessive driving forces based on a company's developing stages. And those obsessive driving forces were survive, grow, and protect. 
And how do you see those obsessions tying into the overall focus on customer obsession? Well, it's in that growth phase where most of the innovation happens. That's just been my experience. And customers respond to innovation. Customers don't want you building things for them or providing things for them that are irrelevant. My definition of innovation is that it's something new that you can apply in the now and it has an impact and a result. And if we stick to that definition of innovation, like innovation, none of Blue Wolf's customers cared if we could have sent them to Mars, as innovative as that may have been. But they did care that we could put Salesforce to work inside of their organization to deliver tangible results in the immediate future. Uh, so we were constantly coming up with new ways to do that. And we were either building technology to do that, or we were coming up with new consulting offerings to do that. And it was all about time and it was all about results. And the best innovation comes when a company is growing because there is an attitude where we can take more risk. There's an attitude where we can deploy more capital. There's an influx of talent because good talent recognizes growth industries and growth companies, and they want to be a part of them. And this whole thing feeds upon itself. So it's that growth phase where the entrepreneur has to be able to evolve into a leader where they are still disruptive. They, are, they still have their vision of the world, which is that disruptive state that every growth business needs. And they know how to communicate it to the organization in a cadence that creates a belief that we are going to Mars someday, but in doing so, that leader can't still sit there and try to micromanage the business. Mm -hmm. Because if they try to hang on to everything, if they try to negotiate every deal, if they try to hire every new hire, if they try to sign every new office lease, if they try to, you know, you can tell I've been there, right? They will hamper that growth. They will stunt that growth. And they will also lose the affection of their people because there is a certain distrust that comes along with trying to micromanage. Right. So do you see, you know, as we're talking about that, right, that transition that needs to happen once you move into that larger phase where you're, where the impulse is to protect what you have, is that how you see that connecting that kind of inability to let go and, and trust other people? Well, to... no, I, I think what Stan was saying is that third phase is after the growth phase. Right, and, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, Yeah. I, I think organizations have to do everything within their power to ever avoid getting there. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the world I come from. And, and, no, I think, I was gonna, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Honestly, is you know, it sounds to me like you don't ever want to get to that third phase where it's it's like the... It's like the elderly phase, right? Where you look back on all the good times and you try and preserve that, that sense of nostalgia and you just want everything to be just like the, the golden days. You know? It's the monarchy phase. <laughs> it's protect what we have and convince everyone else that they should still be here. Like if you're not growing, you're not providing your culture with growth opportunities. And I don't mean just growth from a revenue perspective. I mean a career path perspective, a knowledge perspective. The pie has to be getting bigger inside of an organization. Otherwise, you know, you're basically playing a shell game of trying to protect an industry. And I get the fact that 
you know, there are many, many companies out there that are large and, and have thousands of employees that are not growth companies. I just happen to be of the belief that if you're a leader in a growth company, it is your job to keep it a growth company. And again, it's not just revenue growth. There are all sorts of different ways to measure growth, but it's vital to the evolution and, and the survival of a company. Because eventually that company that's in the protective mode, eventually the walls come down. Thanks for listening to our interview with Stan Slap. We'll share the resources and books we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And don't forget to sign up for the Customer Obsessed newsletter to stay up to date and get bonus clips and exclusive content. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a Customer Obsessed moment.